Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the Pop Apocalypse, a podcast from the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. In the year 2021, Professor Charles Stang launched the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative, which we refer to as TNT. This initiative studies mystical experiences, practices, and philosophies from prehistory all the way to the present and all around the globe. As an initiative at the CSWR, this will naturally include study of mysticism found in traditional religions. But it's also about understanding how such ecstasies are practiced and philosophized today. And today, traditional religions are just a fraction of that mystical terrain. So this podcast is devoted to the ecstatic and the eerie, the mystical and the monstrous, the weird and the wonderful as they appear in popular culture. I'm your host, Matthew J. Dillon, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow here at the CSWR. More importantly, I will be your mystagogue on this audio journey for however many episodes they'll let me get away with. Now, before launching into the interview, a word about the title is in order, uh, specifically the use of the ancient term apocalypse. I follow the great scholar of apocalyptic literature, John J. Collins, and identify two primary apocalyptic modes. Apocalypses can be vertical. An author might be transported into the heavens to receive cosmic knowledge, see God, or become transformed. Alternately, a heavenly messenger descends to grant select humans a message that brings salvation or knowledge. On the other hand, or the second mode, apocalypses are horizontal, or perhaps the better word is temporal. These are stories of the end times. In this form, the world is the ground for a cataclysmic battle. At the end of the world, we as readers witness reality as it truly is. The world we taste, touch, and live in is just a temporary drama that conceals this ultimate divine reality. This podcast recognizes that the visions, ascents, and revelations that we see everywhere in ancient apocalypses are still happening to people today. The artists, writers, musicians, and scholars we invite on the show have been transformed by a vision, or perhaps they found themselves zapped by esoteric knowledge. However it comes about, they encode this knowledge into their paintings, into their comics, music, films, and books. And like Apocalypse is old, the myth and art of Revelation are not just stories, whatever that means. They are media that open portals in reality. The stories can, and often do, activate those same revelations in the sensitive reader. So be careful. This podcast is radioactive. I can think of no two people who embody the mission of Pop Apocalypse better than our first guests, Alex and Allison Gray. Alex and Allison are two of the most influential visionary artists of ours, or really any time. Since the two met in 1975, they have been pioneers in psychedelic culture and visionary art, blazing the trail that so many young artists find themselves on today. Alex Gray's art represents realms of visionary consciousness, 
interweaving the anatomy of body and soul. In Gray's paintings, the light of spirit illuminates the core of each being, depicting psychedelic mystical experiences with artwork that has touched and inspired millions. He is the author of five books that feature his artworks and his writings, Mission of Art, Sacred Mirrors, Art Psalms, Transfigurations, and Net of Being. You should own them all. He is perhaps most widely known for working with the prog metal band Tool. His artwork is featured on the band's last three records. His work appears in their music videos, and massive reproductions of his paintings often hang above the stage in their concerts. Alison Gray is a painter and social sculptor. Alison's paintings address an essentialized worldview, the artist's interpretation of the realms of chaos, order, and secret writing. Chaos symbolizes the material world, a field of colored light made of particles and waves, cells and systems. Order represents the interconnected realms of pure spirit, a mandala of energy and light. Sacred writing scribes the untranslatable realm of creative expression. Educated at Tufts University, Allison has long been an arts educator, editor, events creator, and muse. And even beyond her incredible art career, Allison has been an organizational genius behind the institutions that have made visionary art such a force in today's culture. Together, Alex and Allison founded the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, or COSM, as you'll hear us refer to it throughout the interview, a spiritual and creative retreat center that has made its home about an hour north of New York City, pending traffic. They are currently remodeling Entheon, a temple dedicated to visionary art. To get personal for a moment, and, and I promise not to do that frequently on this show, after my own mystical awakening when I was 18, it was Alex Gray's Sacred Mirrors, Tools Lateralis, and Alex's artwork for that record that made me realize I was not alone. Others in our time and beyond had seen the world transformed in this kind of spiritual x-ray. So that's why I geek out at the very beginning of the interview. I wanted to have these two on as the first guests, not just because of their influence on me as the host, but because there are literally millions of people like me who have had their lives transfigured by Alex and Ellison's art. Their work embodies how the mystical begins to circulate through our culture. One person's revelation encoded in art provokes another revelation and another. The chain of transmission spirals out, keeps going, and soon, we find ourselves in a popular culture overflowing with mystical ideas, visions, art, and stories. In other words, we find ourselves in a pop apocalypse. It is my profound honor to welcome Alex and Allison Gray onto the pod. Now, I know I'm not the first, and I will be far from the last to say my life would have been entirely different without coming into contact with your work, but it bears mention here because I can say I would never have gotten a PhD in comparative mysticism, hosted this podcast, or helped pioneer transcendence and transformation here at HDS without coming into your work uh, 20 plus years ago. So... Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, 
Now, profound acknowledgement. Thank you so much, Matthew. It, it's very heartfelt. So, and second, lighter. Um, I understand you guys just returned from the AAR, uh, American Academy of Religion meeting in Denver. How was that? How was, was it your first? It was our first, and we were so... Um, it was a moving kind of uh, event for us because I feel like what we're doing is rarely contextualized within the framework of um, the evolving state of religion. Uh, we may feel that way, you know, but uh, we don't know who's watching, you know, and so to have uh, Christian Greer and uh, Eric Davis and uh, Deepak Sarma give their reflections on what is happening here at COSM and and how our work has been received by the culture was a really deeply affirmative and and um, uh, touching kind of um, presentations that they all did and kind of questions and things. So I, I it was, was an honor. That yeah, was actually sure. really an honor to be there. And I'm sure you guys had quite the crowd, uh, given given it being AAR and uh, drugs I am, and religion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it's a, it's got a hook. It's definitely got a hook for sure. So uh, I just kind of wanted to go chronologically here. Obviously, we can bounce around, but uh, I was rereading Mission of Art in advance of this, and I was struck by and this is for Alex how you've been drawing since basically you could hold a pencil. Uh, and how your mother kept so many of your drawings from your early days. So I've been reading a lot about the daemon and calling and character. I'm curious, did you ever have a thought or an inclination or any intention to do anything else besides make art? Or were you drawn that way from the very get? Well, it seemed like uh, I, I've never had any other thoughts than that I was an artist. And however that would manifest, you know, that was the uh, who who I was. It was sort of an inborn identity. Of course, I kind of feel like most of us as children imagine, you know, or that if whether we have a word for it or not, you know, that we're innately creative and filled with wonder. And I think that that's what the artist is as a archetype but I have other weirder uh, kind of roots in that that I see now uh, that are linked to a past life as an artist and uh, so you know I I've uh, had I don't know whether they're just elaborate fantasies you can never tell about this kind of thing but i followed the uh, artist, the symbolist, the Belgian symbolist, Jean Delville, who was a uh, kind of a occult adept, but uh, an idealist and a symbolist painter that uh, died uh, within that 49-day Bardo period, mm -hmm. you know, where you can choose a rebirth. And I think that... Uh, you know whether or not it's truly a credible fantasy or uh, or not. You know is not something I think can be determined. But uh, 
I have a profound connection with his work that's always, and with his mission. He wrote the first mission of art. He wrote a oh, book my. called The New Mission of Art. And uh, that predated uh, Kandinsky's uh, mm -hmm. Concerning the Spiritual in Art, but was all about his own theosophical uh, insights and uh, the insights of Neoplatonism and how um, it affected his uh, imagery and, and his intentions as an artist. And I at first felt like, well, we should, I should just republish this mm -hmm. uh, book by Delville, you know, but then I read it and I felt like mm, people aren't going to exactly get it. It's not, can, it's not today's context. It's not the same problems we have. So perhaps every generation there needs to be a new mission of art. Mm -hmm. you know? No, that makes sense. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. And now, now I, I was not asked this question, but I, I do want to jump in and say yeah. that Alex uh, was born to a father who was a professional mm -hmm. artist. So Alex's father uh, was a professional graphic designer all his mm -hmm. life and an illustrator and, and, and uh, worked for lar large companies in the in-house art department so alex alex's you know reference to being an artist and being a professional artist and growing up and being a man and being an artist in in a time when you know that was not as maybe you know i mean norman rockwell's age that's that would be alex's father's age and you know and uh and he went to school with roy roy lichtenstein so you know he was a professional artist as well so that mm -hmm. i think you know would lead oh, Alex to feel that he could certainly. be uh, an artist for life. I have to insert myself and say mm -hmm. that I too was recognized as an artist in nursery school mm -hmm. and was singled out to paint murals of farms and things like that at the age of like three, you know, and then <laughs> one, one prizes in, 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 in elementary school in second grade, I won the prize for the whole school for my, my rebus competition and went to see you know uh you know program of, of illustration and and uh so yes we both i think identified at a very early age as artists and went to art school directly from high school which thank you and that was going to actually be my next question is so, that right yeah so i was well i suppose i should ask how did you two meet Right. I have to, you know, get into the nitty gritty of all that. Uh, but I also wanted to ask you, Allison, I understand you started to become more interested in spirituality and took LSD a few years before, Alex? Yes. Right? When I started college, um, I started college in September of, uh, to, of 1969, mm -hmm. a very important <laughs> year after the Woodstock Festival. And, uh, I took LSD for the first time in October of 1969. So it wasn't <laughs> long thereafter that my journey with uh, psychedelics began and was rather active, very active in my first few years of college. It was just like, that's what's going on, you know, when every college, university campus, you go away from home, you start experimenting. Mm -hmm. And I did I did a lot of, uh, of psychedelics. I didn't really get involved in anything other than like not, never got involved in uh opiates or things like that mm -hmm. but i did i did take a lot of psychedelics in my first few years and um 
Yeah. And I did a lot of uh, interesting things with my friends. I, you know, I, I took walks and danced to Led Zeppelin, you know, and hiked mountains and ride bicycles. And I evolved, you know, my, 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 myself through psychedelics, even though I had not had a spiritual opening until 1971 when I read Ram Dass's book, mm. Be Here Now which came out in 1971. And a lot of people were influenced by it. A lot of people. Oh, certainly. certainly. <laughs> it's a very, a very popular book. But anyway, that was, that was my, you know, he, he recommended, uh, see, you know, to take LSD in a dark room. Mm -hmm. So I had never done LSD in that way. In 1971, I had my own little room. I was going to school in Cambridge at that. I mean, I was living in Cambridge at that point, and I had this little room, and I went into the dark, and I took LSD by myself and um, saw the white light, as he had recommended. Mm -hmm. And that was really, I mean, I think, I think we had certain connections to spirituality before that, but were unrecognized or untapped, you know. I was, you know, went to Sunday school and I always, mm -hmm. you know, did really well. And I kind of loved, you know, I kind of was called to, to it, but I don't think it, it really uh, opened me up until I, I did that, that one LSD trip where I saw the white light and I saw it as writing. So that was it. Secret writing came to me. And so secret writing it. begins in 71. That's when I saw secret writing and had my first god contact we say you know it's like you know just i well, i remember thinking this is what people call god mm -hmm. this is what the word god is referring to you know like i i was an agnostic jew i was you know like traditions and i enjoyed and did well in sunday school interested in the bible stories and all that <laughs> but but not really uh you know uh god realized in the sense of realizing that there is a god there it is and there it was and god was basically talking to me through secret writing so in an ineffable language an mm -hmm. untranslatable language but in all language you know so that was your first experience with the secret or ineffable language does it unfold over time do you start to you know through various experiences see sort of an alphabet there or do you get different characters over different experiences how does your whole because it's something you pictorially depict many times. Well, in in the in the evolution of my art, the first body of work that I did about secret writing, which you know was really identified by Alex, it was sort of like a secret body of work that I wasn't really sharing. And then Alex came into my life in in 1975, and. It was like one of our. It was maybe our second, third date. You know, I showed him this secret body of work because, well, we met uh, uh, because <laughs> we met because Alex uh, took his first LSD in my apartment at my party. I gave this mm -hmm. party at the end of the year for school, and he was a classmate who I had not dated or gone out with, but had seen his performances, and they were. A, astonishing they were raw and amazing and I never would miss one he would put little little flyers handwritten flyers up on the wall and I would just be there you know to see him do whatever he was going to do and they were very interesting um and um anyway I I uh he he called me the next day 
after he had had an opening with God on his first LSD experience in my apartment while there was a party going on. I mean, I had to go into a dark room, right? And like, not really go inside. He, you know, just saw, well, I should let you talk about that. You go ahead. What what did you see when you, your first LSD? Well, I could prelude it by uh, recounting the kind of story that maybe I've told uh, often about that fateful day. For me, it was uh, May 30th, uh, 1975, and it was the last day of art school. We had, you know, kind of casually uh, met and had conversations during the year. She was really one of the only people who was curious about the strange things I was doing and uh, had shaved half my hair mm. for half a year and I was working with the theme of polarities. The truth was I was a really seriously depressed 21-year-old uh, um, on that last day of art school, and I was considering suicide. I woke up asking basically a God I didn't think existed uh, to show me a sign that I should, you know, uh, go on and because uh, I'd pretty much uh, become so uh, depressed uh, over over the year and uh, was on a street corner for really not more than two minutes uh, after art school saying goodbye to my professor uh, and Allison drives around the corner in her yellow VW and uh, leans out the window and says, hey, I'm having a party later tonight. You guys want to come to the end of the school year party, you know, in my place? And so, uh, yes, on the way over, uh, I had uh, some of this um, magical Kahlua and LSD. Mm -hmm. And uh, it... Uh, turn my life around. It was emergency medicine, I feel like. I uh, gave the other half of the bottle to uh, Allison, who I guess uh, drank it, uh, but she was giving the party. I sat on a couch the entire time. And, um, I, and it's unlike any other LSD experience I ever had in that it was a continuous vision. I, you know, usually everything is changing so fast, you know, and they're and or evolving or there's cartoon characters or, you know, no, all manner of archetypes can appear. But this was an experience of going through a tunnel. I was uh, in, it was whenever I closed my eyes, I was inside of it, it seemed like this massive tunnel uh it, like a conch shell you know and it had a kind of iridescent mother of pearl kind of but it was a live kind of surface and it curved around in a like a spiral and right around the the corner was this brilliant light that was certainly god god's presence 
wisdom, love, all the answers to all the questions I ever had. Um, and, and a deeply positive kind of uh, message of, of hope. And it was really my, mm-hmm. the saving kind of light. And I, I was in the dark, but I was going toward the light. And so I had a direction. It, would, it gave me a direction and I could see all the different shades of gray brought the opposites together. I've been working with this theme of polarities. So this was a... You just come back from the North Magnetic Pole. Alex took a trip to the North Magnetic Pole. (laughs) Oh, I'd never heard this. Oh, my goodness. And I was very impressed. When you came back to school with your head all shaved, you Mm -hmm. looked like a a Marine, you know, kind of, and you... You had just come back from the North Pole, and you wanted to show me your 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 Super Eight videos of the North mm-hmm. Magnetic Pole. Yeah, I that that was the adventure that kind of I spent all my money, and one is the <laughs> reasons that I was so depressed. You know that I I just blown my wad on uh, going to the North Magnetic Pole, and because uh, I was trying to externalize all these internal uh mm-hmm. elements of of um working with the theme of polarities well tell them about and, polar mm-hmm. wandering polar mm-hmm. wandering was well you know yeah polar polar wandering was the name of the uh performance because i would call all these different adventures kind of performances and uh polar wandering of course is a phenomena uh that you know, we use our compass to uh, that points north, uh, and there is a a geomagnetic field that's about a hundred miles across, and it's where all the lines of force around the Earth come in to the top of the Earth. And so all of our compass needles point toward it, true, you know, true north in some mm-hmm. sense. And uh, so I thought it was an interesting phenomena that this thing that we rely on to get our bearings is in constant motion mm-hmm. and it is wandering. And uh, so, and they have geomagnetic observatories to mark the shift in the uh, pole. And so I thought this was a sign that you can never get your bearings truly in the material world. Okay. No, I, I wanted I wanted to actually say at that point too that that you you your bearings were always in motion, you see. And I feel like that was also the lesson. You were feeling very depressed, but you were finding that the bearings that you were looking for, the rudder, the the, the focus was was always moving in a constant change. And I think when you saw the the spiral, it was always in motion and in constant change. That's true. But I could see there, because uh, it became like an emblem to me, you know, this polar unity spiral, uh, I could see that I had a direction, you know, it wasn't aimless. I was going toward the light. I may be in the dark, uh, but I could see a path, you know, toward, so then what happened? toward the light. 
And you called me. It was like a spiritual rebirth canal for me, you know. And it yeah, was... I was going to say the imagery sounded very Grothian, very totally. Stan yeah, totally. And and like Raymond Moody's whole thing mm -hmm. about uh, you know going through the tunnel toward the light, and it, that was really uh, it was very graphic and continuous for hours. The same vision and it was blissful truly and and filled with you know kind of philosophical import and like any uh first time tripper i guess <laughs> you know i who was who's taken from a suicidal cliff to a hey full-on mystic here now yeah, yeah talk about transformative <laughs> right uh. i got the download and I, and i was so excited you know like the next day i thought like uh, I gave that <laughs> rest of that bottle to Allison. I'm going to call her up. You know, we had mm -hmm. no contact through, throughout the party. I was so busy giving a party. And well, so it sounds like Alex was busy too. So. I was busy, but I, I was not like as focused as he was on the trip itself. Like I was yeah. when I was doing it solo in a, in a dark room. You know what I mean? I was like, you know, I don't know, grooving. But you, you yeah. called me the next day, and then within a few days, I was saying before. I showed you my work. Yeah. And we started showing each other everything. And and uh in those in the in that period of the secret writing, they were infinite characters. Mm. You were asking about that, that they yep. were infinite characters. And I uh started a body of work uh just on this automatic writing of infinite characters, you know, you know, 14 hour days of filling space with infinite characters, which was part of my master's thesis mm. on secret writing. And, um, and then I wanted to print them. I wanted to make textbooks, like, you know, book, books of text pages, you know, like illuminated manuscripts almost. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to select an alphabet. I had to uh -huh. create an alphabet from the letters that I had been writing automatically. There were certain recurrences. There were certain things that I noticed about written language that, uh, you know, just the basic physicality of, of, of letter forms that, uh, that I was making that were coming out of me. And I wanted, and there was no illustrator files or computers or anything in those days for that. So I had to have stampers made. In order to stamper my text and do it oh, by wow. hand, I had 20 stampers made. So I made an alphabet of 20 letters. And I um, eventually, maybe not immediately, but eventually created an order for those letters, like an alphabet mm -hmm. or a mantra. And, um, and none of them had names and none of them had sound corollaries and none of them had... Uh, meanings because i didn't want to express that i didn't want to be uh translating or coding that wasn't my idea the idea was that the language was of the ineffable mm -hmm. it was untranslatable unpronounceable and like real divinity like the way i really experienced divinity being you know you know the nameless presence you know and and just like all language coming through it symbols it was a mystery language yeah, yeah. symbols are the way we, we you know transfer information so i want to uh ask a follow-up on this because as, as i understand it you have a jewish background 
right? I do. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I hear you talk about that, my uh, the bells are going off because in Kabbalah, the idea that Hebrew is the very language of the world, an ineffable language, one that has tremendous creative power, right? That it's our, our world is structured and coded on that. I'm hearing your ineffable language and I'm like, wait a minute, there's a very strong resonance here. And then also thinking about how in your works that I'm familiar with, it's also aniconic, right? Where with Alex's work, there's so many anthropic forms. In yours, it's very much this sort of vibrating, pulsing grid-like kaleidoscope, you know? So I'm curious if you've ever thought on what sort of influence, if any, or resonances you see with Jewish mysticism in Kabbalah in your work at all, or or none? I absolutely feel that when I saw Secret Writing, it resonated with me as the true God, because it 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 read everything that I felt and knew and in, in inherently was taught about God, which was that God was not a being, not a person, not a face, not a gender. I always knew that God was not a he because I was a she, and if God was within, then it couldn't be a he. So it had to be genderless. It had to be the one God. God is one. So yes, yeah, so I felt very much like like this did not this did not deny the re- the religion that I you know came to trust you know my tradition which is that God is you know really not a a person mm-hmm. and uh, and and so it had no, it was faceless but it also I have to say about Kabbalah I did not you don't when you go to Sunday school and you go to you don't mm-hmm. study the 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 um, mystical tradition of Judaism, which mm-hmm. I think is very interesting. And I came upon it later and really more, more through Alex than anything else, mm-hmm. because the Jewish that I was, was the Torah. And the Torah is all writing and God is received through writing. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel, I've always felt that, you know, that Alex and I uh, saw the same God you know, we've, we've had other experiences mm-hmm. together, like a year later, we had this yeah. profound experience of the universal mind lattice, yes. and Alex named it. And I, and I, um, and I had the same ex- exact vision, really, although I portray it more from the top, more from like the funnel, like looking down into the fountain, where Alex mm-hmm. chose to, the single entity, the one node, like we were each a node, you know, of this fountain. So I, I feel that our portrayal of it comes from a different perspective and certainly from different styles, but was really about the same matter. Transcendental life. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have the same subject as artists, but it comes out in a, a com, you know, from abstraction and I bring it into the uh, sort of multi-dimensional experience of being human and having a body and grounding that transcendental light in the subtle uh, other visionary realms as well. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask about the the mind lattice vision, just a very uh, sort of particular question. When that was done, what was your experience like talking about that and realizing you had the same experience? Right. There's few things that are as fascinating as, you know, transpersonally shared, but introspective experiences. So how did that just alter your 
perspective on your art, the way you approach your work? I am so curious. Well, we had started our book of trips, you know, mm -hmm. we had journeyed a few times, I believe that uh, year, our first year together, but it was really kind of one year after our uh, kind of initial getting together on May 30th, the 31st, because uh, it, it was June 3rd, you know, 1976. And uh, we started a journal, you know, just to note down when we took it, what we took and things like that, and thought it might be useful. So we had a notebook there in the bedroom where we uh, were journeying. And um, we quite often would listen to uh, like Bach organ music uh, during these uh, journeys. Played well. by Albert Schweitzer. Yeah, some of that our important. favorite uh, uh, and very deep and moving kind of um, a, a stratum of, uh, of depth and uh, perhaps religious flavor for me growing up in a Christian church. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a sacred space, basically. And, but, but all of that uh, became a blur. Uh, I think we had taken a substantial dose because uh, uh, we wound up in a dimension without um without bodies mm -hmm. but the body i suppose or the identity had uh become a ball of light it was like a ball but like a toroidal field you know like an apple is like a torus really you know it's mm -hmm. got it kind of puckers in at the top and bottom and in like an electromagnetic field as well you know, that has this same kind of shape. And we like so, to say fountains and drains yeah. or sucking and blowing. Yeah. Blowing it, out and yeah. sucking in. Because these lines of force were both radiating out like a fountain and they were flowing in at the same time. There were other lines of force that were, that was the basic form that we were. And... It seemed outside of time, like this might be like the, a, a bubble of the soul or the sphere of the soul uh, that Plato talked about, this mm -hmm. kind of form that um And the carried... lines of force of the earth, like you were just saying. Yeah, yeah, it, it bore resemblance to that. And uh, it seemed like this was the storehouse of all the different lifetimes. You know, and this was, and that the body has these temporary adventures, you know, but all the the knowledge that's gained is is stored in this cell, you know, in the body of God, because every other being in the universe was also one of these balls of light. And the light was love. So the that was what, connected everyone truly and was shared by everyone was the light that was love and, and love was god's secret name <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was we came out of the journey 
or enough to, you know, say, how you doing, you know, <laughs> and we, and we uh, drew pictures. We yeah. started drawing in the, in the notebook. Yeah. Of what I, it was, it was like, I was, it was so amazing. And it was like, you know, so I started drawing these toroidal things and Allison said, that's where I was. And she showed in her pictures, like the vistas that she was seeing. Mm -hmm. And I, yes, I saw that too. And it was, it was additionally freaky. Mm -hmm. To you, because yeah. you thought, I thought all along that you were there. I, I, I you know, because oh, you're lying there. And the Taurus was coming. I could just, we were, you know, just lying like, you know, this on the bed. And then the, the, the energy was flowing out of our feet and into each other and then out of my head and into each other. And then it was like extending to all beings, all sentient beings on earth that were living were, were part of this great vast vista of fountains and drains. Yeah. And maybe beings from other dimensions as well. It felt like you were waking up from the dream of life, mm -hmm. basically. You know how you wake up from a dream and you think, oh, well, that was, you know, it was like fully realized, but, you know, now I'm in reality. Mm -hmm. This was like a bigger reality, you know, that mm -hmm. waking from the flesh dream. So uh, that is wonderful. Thank you. And I really hope you guys kept your sketches. We did. Oh, yeah, we, oh, we published thank them. God. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, those are, <laughs> those are holy. You started writing about psychedelics when it was, um, what's the term I'm looking for? It took Dangerous. a lot of bravery. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm going back to 1990. Like things were very different. I was so curious how you've seen that shift over time. Because now, I mean... We have Emory, Berkeley, Harvard are doing psychedelic research. John Hopkins, right? It's everywhere in the culture. It's fascinating to watch the shift, but you guys experienced it firsthand. Well, there was always underground experimentation mm -hmm. going on, and there was a psychedelic scene, even when it wasn't in the newspapers or in the magazines so much. And people would ask you, that you, Alex you, not talk you, about psychedelics when yeah. he was doing talks, but he would talk about it anyway. Well, it just seemed like if you're interested in the work, then, and you're not interested in how the work came about, you know, because that would be the inevitable question, even if I didn't mention LSD, mm -hmm. you know, someone would ask a question and say, well, what inspired this, uh, you know, kind of painting, you know? And so I would inevitably go back to these uh, kind of mystical experiences and the visionary experiences that were catalyzed by psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, so I talked about it since having them in the 70s. And I shortly after that time began giving talks and things uh so it's been part of the pariah aspect of uh you know that it doesn't fit well within the mainstream art culture and art talk because uh not that many critics have actually uh had psychedelic experiences and in some mm -hmm. ways i think that it's it's a state-specific kind of work. 
if you've been there and seen that, then you have an automatic soul connection mm -hmm. with the uh, with the work sometimes, and or at least with the meaning behind the work, mm -hmm. and uh, that it's pointing to these dimensions of consciousness and uh, and spirituality that are definitely contactable by those mm -hmm. who have journeyed and and seen beyond the veil of things and so that's why there was a an immense popular kind mm -hmm. of connection and and the connection with tool yeah. was a way to uh expand that audience and the people who saw the work and had that kind of uh, connection visually with it because you can see whether an artist is psychedelic or not in their work a lot of times you know maybe. or you can fly under the radar and still be psychedelic which is what mm -hmm. i've been doing for decades <laughs> uh oh yeah. so did we out you in this interview oh no <laughs> <laughs> not at all i mean okay. i'm very open yeah. about it but i remember a time when I sold work to IBM and and and, and yeah. Chevron and and big banks and and lots of uh, insurance companies and places that just loved the the chaos and order aspects of my work and mm -hmm. didn't realize at all or know anything about its psychedelic origins. It's a psychedelic Trojan horse, That's right. you know, yeah. <laughs> like getting it getting into and maybe subtly influencing <laughs> minds, you know, to be open. One of the things that struck me rereading. Uh, your works was that the your time as an embalmer and preparator at the morgue was after the universal mind lattice vision, right? It was well, late 70s. It was around the same time I was yeah. working uh, there. And uh, so I was thinking a lot about the difference between life and death. And yeah, uh, yeah pondering on it, it's it's rather a hidden thing as i suppose is good you know in some ways but the the stillness of death and uh the mystery of spirit you know is somehow uh activated you know when you're working with uh the dead yeah i wanted to ask how how do you think that has later conditioned your work Right, the ways in which your experiences within the morgue, with the dead, et cetera, how is that carried forward? Or is it just something you had to leave behind? Oh, no, I think it really laid a foundation for my work, which I still portray the anatomy. I, I think that it's, uh, I got a chance to view it close up because it was in a medical school uh, that I and uh, so the dissection work and things like that was something that I had always respected from the artists that I admired, like Leonardo and, and Michelangelo. They actually studied and dissected the body, trying to understand the mystery of form and musculature and things like that. And all the different layers of the body under the flesh are equally beautiful to the skin and the exterior. But talk uh, about the life and, energy piece that you you studied for that you the study of life energy that you were doing at the time. As well. Yeah, well, of course, 
you know, when one confronts the dead on a daily level, then the mystery of life becomes, you know, like, what is that? And what is life energy, you know? So that became a deep subject for me. And I was interested in all the different folks who had talked about the Elan Vital, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, of course the Odic Force or, or uh, you know, uh, Reich's Oregon. Uh, there are various other, the Chi, you know, there's a lot of different, the Prana, all of these different notions of uh, the etheric and subtle bodies, the multiple uh, subtle bodies that surround us. And uh, so, yeah, that became the subject of my, uh, of a performance Allison and I did back in 1978, uh, Life Energy. And uh, that was laid the foundation for the Sacred Mirror series. Well, Alex did his first lecture ever <laughs> it was on life energy it was on this all the studies that you've been doing of, of you know becker and uh and uh reich and uh mesmer and like all the people mm. who had studied life energy and 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 it was a slide talk because that's what you had in 1978 slides and you know uh, um then you did a um we did some exercises with the people you know communal exercises about experiencing your life energy but you did these charts of life energy. Do you want to describe that? Well, they were life-size charts of the body. One of them was of the nervous system because I felt like in the West, you know, we have the idea that uh, life and consciousness is a product of uh, maybe a byproduct of the nervous system, you know, in the mm -hmm. materialist sense. But then in the Eastern sort of um, and yogic traditions, you know, you've got the the chakras, the auras, the uh, acupuncture meridians and points, and this kind of uh, lays out a different idea that of of the uh, subtle energies that inform our our physical form, and so. Uh, I did a, a drawing, a simple drawing of that. They were both life-size charts, and we invited mm -hmm. the viewers to come up and stand before them. They were in the anatomical position with the hands uh, open, a lot like the uh, Mary, you know, mm. uh, or the welcoming kind of uh, mother, but uh, inviting the viewer then to stand before these images and try to get in touch with those systems. So the idea of mirroring these systems by looking at a large chart of it, basically, um, inspired Allison to say, you know, because she thought, well, the best part about that performance is were the charts. And, hmm. and what you ought to do is a whole series based on that, you know, from the oh. physical body into the mm -hmm. subtle body and into the... Uh, body mind spirit basically mm -hmm. you know i i knew that alex had gotten an a plus plus on his uh anatomy final which was overlays of the various systems yeah. of the body so i so i thought <laughs> in you know school. you'd be the perfect person out. to do that and he, yeah. he and he did them in these life-size uh sacred mirrors he did the yeah. anatomical ones first actually and i, I think that was oh. an incredible education 
for Alex to, uh, you know, really study that deeply, even more deeply than his A++, you know, like, mm -hmm. like the, the full body and all the organs and their actual sizes and what they all looked like. I mean, it just, well, you know, that was the beginning of the series, which then, which then ended, you know, which you, you couldn't wait to get to the psychic energy system, spiritual energy system, universal mind lattice, which was about our, our, our experience of out of body experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wanted to embed this uh, mystical mm -hmm. experience that we had had of the universal mind lattice in this very embodied kind mm -hmm. of thing. So you could take a viewer, you know, from what they know to be real, but is also hidden from us. You know, it's, it's not being without skin is something we don't you know, commonly experienced, mm -hmm. but seeing all those systems are things that we know exist. And, and in a sense, they're easy to uh, universalize, you know, a person mm -hmm. can stand before a nervous system and what, and there's no gender, there's no, uh, there's nothing to get in the way of identification with this uh, kind of system. So it's a very handy kind of thing to uh, come in contact with the depths of your physical being, and then hopefully that transfers in some way to your more metaphysical being. In both the spiritual energy system and psychic energy system, those were, as I understand it, from different entheogenic experiences that came later after Universal Mind Lattice? Well, actually, the uh, yes, yes. Um, but, but the... Uh, I, I saw that I was trying to uh, trying to find iconography that would refer to all these systems. And I laid it out basically in the chart, mm -hmm. but it seemed like um, I needed to go into a more X-ray uh, kind of vision of the anatomy to include it all, you know. Uh, all the multi-dimensions uh, at once and suggest both the physical and the subtle energetic um, and visionary forms, thought forms and such. These things were pretty much laid out by the theosophists, mm -hmm. really, uh, in quite early, you know, in the 20th century and things. And so I was painting the psychic energy system in 1980 and um and so it it really just seemed like a an evolution of the chart things but it, it came to me in a in a vision one day staring at myself in the mirror that that was the that you could see on all these different levels at once you know if you use the x-ray uh vision and that it also the x-ray worked because we're familiar with the x-ray uh, and and it suggests also something unseen but that you know is there mm. and so by linking it also with these subtle energies uh, perhaps you could open the viewer to uh, accessing something that's also hidden but uh, and and less realized and that that would be the way to then lead up to the universal mind lattice 
That would be, thank you. That's a great segue into uh, the background on when you guys started Cosm, right? So Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, I understand it became a uh, an official nonprofit church in 2008. So is that in Entheon where the Sacred Mirrors are currently located? Um, and how do things stand with Cosm and Entheon now that we're in the middle of a global pandemic? <laughs> well, well, to go back a step, yeah. I would just say that uh, Alex, you know, took 10 years to create the entire series, which is 19 paintings and two etched mirrors. And uh, after doing that, you know, we had an MDMA experience in 1985 that encouraged us. I mean, it, it just basically spoke to us that we had to care for the sacred mirrors. We had to create an installation so that they could be viewed all together. And they were, you know, uh, exhibited all together at the new museum and, mm -hmm. and in, in a new number of shows across the globe. Uh, but they were, you know, they were, um, Alex had a vision on this MDMA experience of the frames, which was mm -hmm. the context for them in which they would all be unified. And they were sculpted frames. And I, I like to, you know, lovingly call it the cartoon history of the universe was kind <laughs> of carved on them. And uh, we, we carved these frames together. We carved one and then we made a large, a very gigantic, they're 10 and a half feet tall. So we made mm -hmm. this gigantic mold and we cast 21 of them uh, for the new museum show in 1986. And, um, but I mean, he had the vision in 1985. So we like, like mm -hmm. we went like straight to town and like went to do this. It was an enormous project that we worked on and um, making the frames. And so then we had this, you know, like 21, 10 and a half foot by five foot, you know, gigantic, you know, each one weighing about a hundred pounds, you know, mm -hmm. And we had to have a place to put them and they had to be shipped. And every time they were shipped, they would be in danger. So we, mm -hmm. we had to, we realized in 1985 on our, on, on our experience that they, we needed to build a chapel, that we needed mm -hmm. to build a place for them, that this would be a life's work uh, for two people, two artists, separate artists who have separate bodies of work, but this would be like our collaborative social sculpture that we would create a place where they would be installed and could be experienced by psychedelic people. But just mm -hmm. any person could have somewhat of a psychedelic kind of experience from seeing them. And so we did, um, we were, we, we, we talked about it a lot. We did a lot of slideshows about it all over the world. And then a shaman told us to start full moon ceremonies to pray for this chapel of sacred mirrors, which he, you know, which we we had been envisioning. And we started the full moon ceremonies in January of 2003 in our home in Brooklyn. And we became we had become a nonprofit organization in 1996 so that we could oh. receive funds for it. Because we've been doing a lot of talking about it. And so people wanted to give us money and they had to give it to an organization. So we became an organization in 1996. But in 2003, we started the full moon ceremonies in our home. And by 2004, um, September, we were opening a, a 12,000 square foot space in Manhattan, which is on 27th, which was on 27th Street. And we were open in this rented floor. It was like a raw 
you know, industrial building and we built it. We put all our money into building the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors in, in, in New York City. And for five years, we had uh, many tens of thousands of people come mm -hmm. through and many and and never missed a full moon ceremony from then until we're, we're about to celebrate our 249th consecutive in an unbroken chain of almost, yeah. I mean, we're entering our 19th year of full moon ceremonies. But um, by 2009, we had to move out. It was a changing neighborhood, a gentrifying neighborhood, and we had to find we knew that we were that we wanted to find a place that was more tranquil, like a more uh, well. And we became a church. We became a church, mm -hmm. like you said, in two thousand eight, an interspiritual church. Really, not we didn't call ourselves a psychedelic church um, because it was so dangerous to do that. But mm -hmm. we, but we did. It did attract a lot of psychedelic people as well as a lot of just interspiritual people, people of yeah. all faiths. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Anybody who's had a spiritual experience or a, even during meditation or something seemed to have a resonance with the work. And the work had uh, been published in a variety of uh, books mm -hmm. by the time the chapel came around. So people who were curious or had a tattoo of, of uh, their work or I had started to work with uh, Tool as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently you need a tool to build a temple with. They are, they've <laughs> been that. They have so totally been met. that. Yeah. yeah. But then, but then of course we opened, uh, we, we, we purchased a, um, 40 acre old rundown, you know, fixer upper retreat center with, with six buildings and a barn. And, mm -hmm. um, we started to renovate every building. Like this building was a, uh, like a mansion from 1880, 1862. Mm -hmm. And it was very decrepit and we worked from the ground up. We just, you know, recreated this old, this is where we had 10 guest room, 10, you know, beautiful guest rooms. And we have this large space where we can hold, where we held ceremonies before covid you know at least a few hundred every month and sometimes as many as say 1400 you know in certain you know in the summer and mm -hmm. people we have a bonfire we're allowed mm -hmm. to have a bonfire and equinoxes yes. as well as the full moons we're allowed to have a bonfire because we're a church you can only have a bonfire mm -hmm. if you're a church or a, or a boy scout or girl scout camp <laughs> in new york so we we had fire circles. We had you know uh, a lot of a lot of people here, and we had a classroom, but we still didn't have the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. Mm -hmm. You know that was sort of the last building. We we you know we renovated the office and the you know and the great house and the dining hall and all that, so that we could have people here. And then we finally got to building Entheon, which is the, it takes a community yeah. to build a sacred space. That was really what the shaman told us, you know, That's that right. uh, you're not going to have this temple until you have your community that wants it to happen. And so that's really the miracle that's appeared mm -hmm. over these years, you know, because a couple of isolated artists, you know, talking about some chapel idea, you <laughs> know, and, and we're, we don't come from means we're we're still volunteers here basically you know but the um the the world of people who 
say won a poster or a book or something like that has uh, helped to fund this dream of building mm -hmm. a temple. And uh, so that's what's been happening. And during the pandemic, we made a lot of great progress uh, mm -hmm. forward in, in making things happen. Uh, and through the support of the worldwide community, really. And we've had to go online and do virtual uh, full moon ceremonies and new moon ceremonies with our members and things like that. And over the past, and, uh, say, almost three years now, you can find uh, probably around 100 programs that we produced uh, mm -hmm. online, um, including all the full moon ceremonies and new moons and, and uh, interviews and puppet shows. And we started being like a production center mm -hmm. when we were because we had to close for covid yeah. and um it's available on youtube it's on youtube cosm.tv cosm.tv on youtube you can see all of our offerings and um yeah so so now we're we're we were able to to build the temple which is entheon and mm -hmm. is um almost ready to open yeah there's a yeah we've mm -hmm. made tremendous progress on the interior of Entheon. Mm -hmm. on the exterior it looks very like minimalist it's, it's needing sculpture yeah it's mm -hmm. kind of a brutalist uh, minimalist <laughs> uh, sculpture at this point a big box but uh, we intend to hang a a uh, assembly of interconnected godheads mm -hmm. basically all over the thing massive 20 foot uh, kind of sculptures of of uh, faces that interconnect all the different wisdom paths. I highly recommend all listeners go to the website and see the Entheon vision for the building and the video. It's it's positively stunning, really, as I cannot wait to see that. Uh, when do you think Cosm might be open in person again? Well, Cosm, by the way, for everybody, yeah. stands for Chapel of Sorry. Sacred Mirrors. That's okay. And yeah. it's Cosm.org that you would go to. And uh, we are about to very, like within weeks, I'm hoping, before the end of the year, we'll get a certificate of occupancy on that building. And then we'll be able to invite the public in. We have to, we have a few, uh, we have a one gallery that we didn't want to install until we got the certificate of occupancy and that's the gallery of the international visionary artists that's the mm. all one gallery what where we are bringing art from all over that some of the greatest works of contemporary visionary art will be in the inaugural show and it'll be a, it'll be a rotating annual show of a visionary art by other people and alex and i uh, all the works that we have are already installed like the sacred mm -hmm. mirrors uh, chapel is installed and in, in, uh, the great hall with uh, art and many of the galleries are installed and we'll we'll you know start to do um public full moons as soon as we get our certificate of occupancy won't we john mm -hmm. he says yes <laughs> yeah it's prom we're aiming at the spring of, okay uh, 2023 yeah and uh there may be some special events around bicycle day we'll see Ooh, okay. You know, so we have, we yes. have a, a psychedelic reliquary that mm -hmm. houses some special relics, like the glasses that mm -hmm. Albert Hoffman had and uh, wore on his bicycle ride, and and uh, saw when he was making the medicine, and uh, 
We have also a hair from Herr Hoffman Ooh. and a number of written things. We tried to mm -hmm. collect uh, genetic material and uh, something they wore and then some writing and things like that from uh, many different psychedelic heroes like Ram Dass mm -hmm. and Timothy, uh, Leary. Timothy Leary. We have some of his ashes, Zach Leary. Uh, generously gave to us and we have a shirt that Tim wore mm -hmm. uh, and, and Stan Groff and, and Ralph Metzner and, yeah. and the Shulgans and people who have been yeah. you know really in, influential and in, in, instrumental in, in bringing psychedelic culture to any Terrence McKenna stuff Yes. Well, we yes. have yes, we uh, some drawings of Terrence that I did when I attended. We attended his events and things. Mm -hmm. And we have, um, for right now, we only have things that he signed. Like he signed mm -hmm. a number of books uh, to us because we were friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we have a, The Invisible Landscape signed by both he and Dennis. And uh, so... That's special. And, and, and we have an indigenous area and a, yeah. and a cannabis area, you know, uh, various, you know, really incredible relics of indigenous art. We have some ancient, ancient mushroom stones of. Um, yeah, Mayan you know, mushroom yeah. stones that from Guatemala that were on loan from both Paul Stamets and Mitchell, Mitchell Gomez, yeah. you know. So, uh, and we have some. Uh, mushroom eaters that uh, may be over 2,000 year old, years old from um, the uh, Nariet and uh, the Mexican kind of uh, uh, sculptures, the ceramic mm -hmm. sculptures that are very well preserved. Well, if that doesn't make it enticing for you guys to reopen and for us to all make <laughs> pilgrimage wait. out there, uh, hopefully by April 19th. Fingers yes, crossed. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, it's been so lovely to be able to talk with both of you. And there will be links uh, at the bottom to all your websites and everything. So again, thank you so much for coming on Pop Apocalypse. Oh, thank, thank you. you Thanks man. for having us. hope you all enjoyed that talk with the wonderful, amazing, and incredibly brilliant Alex and Allison Gray. Now, we recorded that talk in late November, so a quick update is in order. As of now, COSM remains closed. Please keep an eye out on their website, COSM.org, and sign up for their newsletter to learn when in-person events can begin once again. Those interested in learning more about Alex and Allison's work should head to that website or to alexgray.com. All right, so this is the first episode, so we don't have a pattern established yet. Uh, but the plan is I will normally take this outro to draw attention to some of the works, ideas, and sources that came up in conversation. But seeing as this is the first episode, there are some thank yous and acknowledgements that are in order. Uh, first, our heartfelt gratitude to Trace Bruins and Secret Chiefs 3, who allowed us to use the songs The End Times and The Owl in Daylight. 
Our former director at the CSWR studied at the New England Conservatory of Music, and she conducted orchestras for many, many years. On hearing Secret Chiefs 3, she exclaimed that Trey's work will be studied for generations. I can only agree. So it's an unbelievable honor to have Secret Chiefs 3 featured on the pod. There's more of their music coming after I'm done here, so stay tuned. Christy Welch, the senior graphic designer at HDS, worked with me for months to craft the perfect logo for Pop Apocalypse. Christy has the patience of a saint and the gifts of a master. Thank you so much, Christy. Robbie Rhodes and Robert DeVoe have graciously done the sound editing, which, suffice to say, I don't know how to do. Charles Stang, director of the CSWR and pioneer of TNT, gave me the green light to do this very fun and very weird podcast. Thank you, Charlie. I'm sorry. Just kidding. But thank you for letting me explore this increasingly vital terrain. Um, not every religious studies department gives the green light for people to explore popular culture, a culture, mysticism. And I very much appreciate having the opportunity to do so. The staff at the CSWR, past and present, helped this podcast through its various phases. Ariella Ruth Goldberg, Corey O'Brien, and Hilary Flores Hebert. Thank you all so much for doing so much lifting and offering so much feedback. Hadi Fakori and J. Christian Greer, whose ideas, enthusiasm, and address books really helped get this pod off the ground. Three Nosketeers forever. And all the weirdos in the Academy and beyond that are interested in this sort of material, thank you for listening and giving us an audience. Stay tuned and keep it weird.